We're in Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 22 in just a moment. And have your Bible, of course, you want to open it to Luke chapter 13 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. And I received a few suggestions this week that I slow down and not worry about finishing just to uh, not rush. So we'll see how that works. I'm going to do that today, and we'll see how that works. Um, and we may finish anyway. We'll see. Well, I'm glad you're here. I hope you've had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful week. And we did certainly get some nice rain, didn't we? But I think it's gone. At least I hope it is for a little bit. All right. Well, let's pray. And then we'll begin at Luke 13, beginning with verse 22. The section is entitled The Kingdom of God. Father, thank you for the sense of your presence. We thank you that we can meet together on Zoom. And uh, it's sure not as good as being in the same room, but we're grateful for this opportunity and pray that you'll bless our study of Luke today. Speak to our hearts. Thank you for all who are here. Keep each one strong and healthy. And uh, Father, I pray that our lives will be a reflection of the love of Christ as we um, minister to other people as we have opportunity. So, Father, thank you again for this great day. And I pray now that you'll bless us as we study your gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. The kingdom of God. So uh, let's look beginning at verse uh, 22 of chapter 13, and I'm going to read through verse 30, and then we'll talk uh, briefly about that section. Okay, here we go. Verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. So you understand he's on his way to Jerusalem, and there he will die and be raised from the, from the dead. So he's on, he's on a, a mission. His face is set toward Jerusalem, but as he is on the way, he stops in towns and villages to teach and preach. And though those around him don't realize it yet, uh, this will be his final opportunity in the flesh to speak. And so there's a sense of urgency on the part of Jesus as he goes from village to village. So verse 23 Someone asks a very um, poignant, important question. Someone asks him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? That's a pretty interesting question. If I were to answer that question from my perspective, 2,000 years this side of the cross and the resurrection, I would say yes and no. Yes, in relationship to the number of people in the world, the number saved is small. But if I look at it from the other side of look how many people are already in heaven and how many are on their way to heaven and the multitude that will someday surround the throne, I would say many have been saved. And hopefully that includes everybody on this screen this afternoon. So here's Jesus' answer. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. 
So he's giving a picture of, of the truth of the fact that many will not enter the narrow door and only after it's too late will they begin to knock and cry out. Now, verse 26, we'll go through 30 and then talk about it. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. That's like somebody who says, um, oh yeah, I, I, I'm part of First Baptist Belton. And they say that because they drive by the church every day on their way to work or someplace. So they say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm part of the church. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the temple of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Okay, let's talk about this passage for a moment. The invitation is to come into the kingdom of God, but there's only one way to do it, and that is through Jesus. The way is narrow, not broad, but narrow is the way. Now, part of the issue that we face in our society today is that people want to say there are many ways to God. There are many ways to heaven. Broad is the way. And narrow-minded are those who think the way is narrow. But the scripture, which is what we base our beliefs on, the scripture is explicit, it's plain, it's true. The way is narrow. There is one way, and that is by Jesus. So that's why we want to say to our friends who live around us, I see you do good works, and that's wonderful. But those good works will not get you into the kingdom of God. Only by Jesus do you come into the kingdom of God. Or we say to our Hindu friends, to our Muslim friends, you are very religious, but you have chosen the wrong way. The only way to God is through his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is making sure that his listeners understand that narrow is the way and he is the only way. So there is an urgency to Jesus' words. If you knew that you were going home to heaven in the morning, would there be some things that you want to say to people you care about? And would there be an urgency to those words? Well, that's an awful thing to have to contemplate, I suppose, but I think it would be true if I knew that when I went to bed tonight, I would not wake up in the morning. I think there would be some things I would want to say tonight to the people I love and maybe to some people I know who don't know Jesus, that one last final effort to say, give your heart to Christ. This is the last time I get to tell you that. And so Jesus has a divine sense of urgency in his words as he goes from village to village on his way to Jerusalem, where he will die on the cross and, of course, ultimately in triumph over death arise from the grave.
But Jesus makes it clear, once the door is closed, it is closed. And many who could have entered earlier will cry out, and he will say, I don't know you. And those are the chilling, awful, horrible words that no one on this uh, Zoom today ever wants to hear. We do not want to hear the words, I don't know you. That's why it behooves us to be certain in our hearts that we have chosen the narrow way that we are Christ followers so that we don't have to hear those words, I don't know you. So Jesus is giving, I think, perhaps a a threefold message here, one that says, hurry, hurry. There are some things in life we don't need to hurry, but one that we behooves us to hurry is being absolutely certain that our eternal destiny is secure. We don't want to mess around with that one because we never know. Life is a vapor. Life is fragile. And so we want to hurry. Jesus is saying, hurry. You won't hear me again. Hurry and make that decision. And he is reminding us of the importance of knowing Jesus. A passing acquaintance will not do. A simple head head acknowledgement that says, oh, yeah, I'm aware who Jesus said he was. And, yeah, I'm aware of that. I know who, who he is. A passing acquaintance will not do. Only a heart commitment will do, and the way is narrow. And Jesus is also reminding us many will not choose the narrow way, but many will, and many will be saved from many different places, he reminds us in these verses, including Gentiles. He's speaking, of course, to almost exclusively at this moment in the villages, a Jewish audience. But he is also letting them know what they don't yet fully understand, but that he has come for Israel, yes, but also for the Gentiles. And the message is chilling. Many here who are listening to me will be left out. So uh, Jesus is going from village to village for the last time with a very, very important message. Choose to follow me. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And how important it is for us today to stand on that message because perhaps unlike in previous American generations, we now face the possibility of scorn and ridicule for saying Jesus is the only way. I think when I grew up, and that was sure a long time ago, but I think when I grew up, you would have not found too many, at least too many Gentiles saying, uh, well, there are many ways to God. Many would have said, yeah, we know Jesus is the only way. And yeah, someday, someday I'll think about it. I'm thinking about it one of these days. But, But most would not have said, oh, there are many ways. Jesus is not the only way. But now... Oh, my. So many want to say, well, if you want to follow Jesus, good for you. But I believe that there are other ways to God, and I choose other ways. So 
we must be clear in our message and then be willing to stand on it because not everybody's going to like it. Well, let's go to the next section of verses, verses 31 to 35. And I put the title on these few verses, Jesus is bold and broken. Jesus is bold and broken. So let's look at verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees come to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So he's making it clear. Three more days I'll be there. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and there I will die. Then Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. Do you find it um, interesting, intriguing that the Pharisees warn Jesus that Herod is out to get him? Herod and the Pharisees did not like each other, and that would be the understatement of the year. Uh, Herod hated the Pharisees. They were a thorn in his flesh, and the Pharisees hated Herod and his ungodly ways and his rulership, politically his rulership over them. So why would they warn Jesus about what Herod wants to do. It's a strange warning. But Jesus responds with boldness. That fox, when you think of a fox, often that's a term used for someone who's real sly, you know, real tricky. So Jesus says, that fox, tell him, In essence, I'll leave town when I'm good and ready to leave town and not one minute before. And I'm on my way to Jerusalem and I know what awaits me there and I'm not worried about Herod or what he thinks. God is in charge of the timing of everything that's going to happen to me. So Jesus is bold, not afraid of Herod. He knows what's coming and Herod doesn't cause him to 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 quake in his boots. But at the same time in these verses, Jesus is broken and he's broken over Jerusalem and her continual rejection of him by and large and heartbroken about what he knows will be the fate of Jerusalem. Now, let me just read, leap forward to a verse that we'll get to not too far off. Luke 19.41, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, uh, 
it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, and he was coming from the Mount of Olives, so he has the high ground, and the view is absolutely stunning and magnificent, and with the temple right there in front of him, it must have been an incredible sight. But Jesus sees the city, and verse 41 of Luke 19 says, he wept over it. He wept over Jerusalem, and then goes on to express his heartbreak over the condition spiritually of the city and ultimately what he knows will happen to Jerusalem. So what I would submit to us as we look at that and and at the very least find that to be interesting, I would say about us in our efforts at evangelism and discipleship here and around the world, let's take this, this little passage and say, we also should be bold and broken. Bold in the sense that we are willing to share Christ here and around the world. We'll go wherever he leads us to go, and we will not be afraid. But at the same time, we will be broken because we see the spiritual condition of so many who are lost in their sins. So a boldness and a brokenness. I was sharing, I have a, uh, I do a Bible study with one of my grandsons every Wednesday morning early and before school and work. And so today, as we were talking, um, the discussion led to the the, the mission trip that I, that many of us, some of us, 20-something of us, made to Brazil back in 2000. Uh, I'm, I talked about that in my sermon two weeks ago, so maybe it refreshed your memory. But I remember the first day that we were on the, our way to the work site from our hotel, and we had a little bus that they had for us. And it's early in the morning. There's not a whole lot of talking going on on the bus because everybody's still a little bit sleepy and also wondering about the day, what, what, what's going to be involved. So as we were driving down this road in the hillsides of uh, Brazil heading toward the work site, um, I, I looked out the windows of the bus and saw on the left side of the bus, hillside after hillside after hillside, covered with what the Brazilians call flavelas, which means the poor poverty-stricken area where there were literally, literally thousands of homes on that hillside made of cardboard and tin and pieces of wood, just whatever people could find to stick up in the air to provide some amount of shelter. And literally as far as you could see, there were these flavelas and really for the first time in, in my life that I knew of, I felt myself sinking almost into depression. I, I was wondering, is this what depression feels like? As I looked and I, I literally felt like I was sinking into the seat of the bus, looking at all of that and saying, what possible difference is our presence going to make? Look at those thousands and thousands of poverty-stricken homes where probably they're all, or certainly most of them, are lost 
And so what difference am I going to make? What difference is our little group going to make in the big scheme of things? But it didn't take long for the Lord to snap me out of that and just remind me, you are where I've told you to be. Leave it to me. I will use you and I will use this team for my glory. And so don't, don't you be down or depressed about what you've seen. You just be obedient and the rest is up to me. And of course, I think some of you on the screens were on that trip and God did use us. And there were a, a bunch of folks that came to know Jesus and the church was built and God was glorified. And, and so as you, as you reflect on something like that, you have to say, God, we, all you call us to do is be obedient and then leave the results to you because I'm not the Holy Spirit. And I'm looking at a lot of faces and I'm not spotting the Holy Spirit in the flesh anywhere. But we know that he is real and it is his job to draw people and to speak to the hearts of people. Our job is just to tell what what we know and to be obedient to what he's told us to do. So in, in this commitment that is ours as individuals and as a church to evangelism and missions, Let's remember that with that goes a boldness and with that goes a brokenness, a brokenness over lostness and a desire to see people come to Christ. So therefore we're bold in, in sharing, giving, praying and going. Well, it's dinner time. Well, maybe not what you think, but we come to chapter 14 and again, Jesus is invited to dinner at the home of a Pharisee. And so we're going to read here in a moment. Let's read, we'll read the first six verses. And so what I've entitled this this section, a dinner time challenge from Jesus, a dinner time challenge from Jesus. Now, did I give you, um, yeah, I said the kingdom of God was through the end of that. Yeah. Through verses through, through verse 30. And then, Verse 31 through 35 was Jesus is bold and broken. So if you're making an outline, I just want to be sure you had that. So now we come to the heading, a dinnertime challenge from Jesus. So Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's home again. I suppose this was a good way for them to keep an eye on him and to try to find fault with him, ask him to come to dinner, and there he is. So you know what he's doing, and because he's there, you know what he's saying. So uh, maybe we can trip him up or have cause to arrest him. We'll see. I don't think it was because the Pharisee was developing a love affair with Jesus. That is that he was feeling himself drawn to the message of Christ. Uh, I don't think that at all based on what we see. So here's the, the first challenge is to the religious, verses 1 through 6. To the religious, verses 1 through 6. One Sabbath. Oh. Okay, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Isn't that astonishing? You know what they were thinking. 
you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. But they didn't want to say it. That sounds pretty cold and cruel. So they may remain silent. Let's see what he does. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. They had nothing to say. Okay. It's the Sabbath again. Jesus encounters a man, the home of the Pharisee, bodily swelling. Some translations, the older translations, use the word dropsy, which is an old term likely used to describe excess water from what we would know probably to be congestive heart failure, which causes kidney failure and, and edema, very critical. Many people die from that. It's, it's easy to die from that if, if you're not treated. But Jesus heals him, and we rejoice, and it's the Sabbath. Now, nobody says anything at least it's recorded in the scripture. But the Pharisees, no doubt, were thinking. Jesus knew it. And their thinking was, why today? Why do you have to do that today? Why not tomorrow? But Jesus leaves them speechless. They have no comeback. For they know that if one of their children fell in the well, Sabbath or no Sabbath, they're going after that child. Ox falls in a ditch, they're going to get that ox out. So they are left speechless. They have, they have nothing to say, at least at this moment. So Jesus has a message to the religious. What is, what is that message? If your religion is not a heart religion, then it's false. It's just outward religion, and that heart religion must be centered on me. But the Pharisees, so many of them, were so caught up in the outward appearance and the outward rule of law, but their hearts, so often as we see, were were far from God. There's this constant conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. So Jesus has a message to the religious, but he also has a message, secondly, to the proud, verses 7 through 11. The proud, a message to the proud, a challenge to the proud. Verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, He told this parable. Now, so get the picture. People arrive at the Pharisees for dinner, and there's a little bit of um, holy jockeying for position, and Jesus is just watching it. He's he's observing it as uh, folks try to pick the the best place, the highest, but the the, the place closest to the uh, to the host. Verse eight: When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do you not take the place of honor? Uh, He said, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. 
then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, let's think about that. That's fascinating. I remember uh, hmm, 10, 15 years ago, Sharon and I were at a reception dinner for a wedding that I just performed, lots of people. And we were almost the last, you know, pictures and all that. So we were almost the last to get into the room where the dinner was going to be served. And we were looking for two seats together. We couldn't find any. We walked around and then finally a table near the front, there was, there were two vacancies. And so I came up, I didn't know there was another couple at the table and I didn't know them. So I said, may, may we sit here? And they didn't say anything. They just looked at us. So I took that as a yes and we sat down. Then they spoke and the lady that I didn't know with a little look of disdain on her face said, this table is reserved for family. So I looked at Sharon and said, oh, and looked back and said, I'm so sorry. And we got up and we moved away and we never did find two places together except toward the back. Somebody made room for us so we could, so we could sit together. Now we didn't take that place because we were filled with pride or jockeying for position. Just only two seats left in the room and there was no sign on the table. So we didn't know it was for family. Nevertheless, what Jesus says is true. That was humiliating. I mean, we were embarrassed. I'm sure I was red in the face and we were embarrassed slinking away and hoping nobody was watching except the, the very friendly lady at the table who said it. And, and so Jesus has got a good illustration there. That's true. Nobody wants to take a seat and then have somebody else have the host come and say, hey, I've got this seat reserved. Implication for somebody more important to me than you. So how about moving? So Jesus had been watching the people jockey for position and try to get the best seats. So he has a message for them. Um, take the lowest seat and the host may come and move you up. And if he does, you'll be honored. And what Jesus is taking a slap at here is pride. And he's seeing a lot of it in the room. And so this pride in an outward religion that in the hearts of so many there was not real. And he reminds us in this simple little story, humility should be the mark of a believer. Humility should be the mark of a believer. So is it for you? Is humility a mark of your walk with Christ? We all talk about and sing about the humble Jesus. Are we like him in humility? Now, that doesn't mean you're a groveler or that you're a a doormat. 
but it does mean that you're humble in spirit and people can see it. They know it. They know you're humble. There's another dinner time message in, in this chapter, verses 12, 13, and 14. There's a message to the rich. So let's see what he says in verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Well, that's an interesting picture. So Jesus is giving here an illustration of our being a blessing to the less fortunate. Now, you may decide to have a dinner and actually doing literally what Jesus said. But I think the implication here is not so much that you have a dinner and every time you have a dinner, you be sure to invite all the poor people in town. I think the implication is if you're my follower, you know that a mark of true faith, true religion is that you seek in every way you can to be a blessing to those who are less fortunate, those who can't pay you back for what you do. You're simply wanting to be a blessing to the kingdom of God. And it just gives you this sense of helping, helping others. One thing that you learn early on in a, in a church benevolence ministry is you're not helping people with any, absolutely any expectation of return, any expectation of repayment. Um, it's highly unlikely that that will happen. You're not asking for it. You're not looking for it. You're just doing what you believe is the right thing to minister to the needs of people. I guess in 47 years of ministry from my knowledge, and I wouldn't know everything about it, but my knowledge is probably the folks who've come back and repaid a benevolent gift would probably be able to number them in my two hands, be less than 10. But that's not a disappointment at all. It's just no expectation of that. You're seeking to be a blessing to others so you do the right thing. Now, through the years, I've had I've had more than 10 say, if you'll help us, we'll pay you back. We'll pay the church back. And so we're all, our, our, our quick response is the church doesn't do loans. We only do gifts. And if you choose to give it back, that's between you and God. But this is not a loan. This is a gift. And so Jesus is saying, in your great wealth, in your great accumulation of what you have, remember to be a blessing to those in need. Now, there's another message in this dinnertime setting to the presumptive. That's what I've called verses 15 through 24, to the presumptive. So let's see what that means. Verse 15 of, um, of chapter 14. When one of those at the table with him heard this, He said to Jesus, 
Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Just kind of like he blurts it out. You've got to have something to say. Maybe the silence after Jesus' illustration was a little awkward. So someone calls out, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So Jesus replies, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. They said first, the first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Now, are you, are you getting a picture? Are you getting a picture? Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but still there is room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, what's the picture? This is a message to the presumptive. Those who are assuming, presuming, because of my standing, because I am Jewish and a good Jew, because I am a Pharisee, because I am learned, because I am this and that, I am assuming and presuming I am in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, are you sure? Are you sure? And the truth of the matter is the invitation went out and was rejected. But the invitation then went to the poor, those in the country lanes, the down and the out, and they listened, they heard Jesus, and they knew he was speaking truth, and they are the ones who said yes and followed him. So for us, it's not so much an economic situation as it is the invitation is extended. Some are presumptive saying, oh, you know, I'm a good person. I mean, look at me. I'm a upstanding citizen and God's blessed me. I'm well-to-do, so I must be right with him, and I I don't need to come to your banquet. I'm presuming I'm okay. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. Now, let me give a real illustration of that. Um, I had a conversation with Matt Hollingsworth um, yesterday, and he was telling me the testimony of his father, uh, his late father, his, his dad died just within, um, I think, a few months or a year or so after Matt got here on our staff. And Matt was telling me the story of his father. Uh, Matt's dad was saved when he was the chairman of deacons of his church in West Texas. And when Matt told me that, I said, Oh, I got to hear this. Tell me the story. So he said, my dad grew up uh, 
in church, grew up doing good things. He was a good man. He read the Bible. He attended church. He was good. The church recognized his upstanding citizenship and his goodness, and he became a deacon and then ultimately became chairman of the deacons. But he said, my dad always knew something is just not right. And so the church had a revival service while he was chairman of the deacons and the Lord was speaking. And so his dad, by his own testimony, said, I told the Lord, you're trying to say something to me. Would you just make it clear what it is? So the message was preached that night when the invitation was offered. His dad walked forward and said, I, I've never given my life to Christ. And I'm doing that tonight. And, of course, it was a shock because he's chairman of the deacons. But he didn't know Jesus. So he had been, in a manner of speaking, presumptive, I suppose, that all the stuff he did made him right with God. But it didn't. And Matt said his life was changed. And, yes, he was a good man before he really got saved. But after he got saved, he was a much better man because he knew Jesus. Um, I remember when I was an intern in Dallas at First Baptist, one Sunday morning, the children's minister, who'd been there for many years, greatly, greatly loved and revered in that church. Invitation was offered. She came forward. I saw her come, and my assumption was that she had a prayer request to give to the pastor. But when I saw her weeping as she went to sit on the front bench, I thought, wonder what's going on. Well, here's what was going on. That morning, she gave her life to Christ. She had been a wonderful children's minister, had done lots of good things, highly respected in the church, but she didn't know Jesus. She had been perhaps presumptive. So, I think there's a message there. Don't be presumptive, but be certain that you know Jesus and that he is in your life, in your heart, not presumptive on the kingdom of God. So all of these who were invited had one one excuse after another, after another, after another. They were really, it would appear to me just reading this, it looks like they're too distracted to follow Jesus. I mean, they've got a, they've got a wedding to do. They've got a field to take care of. They've got, uh, uh, was it new, uh, new oxen and new ox team and all kinds of things. Just too distracted. Don't, I, you know, I can't be bothered with that right now. The kingdom may not be populated by who you think. In fact, when we get to heaven someday, there may be some real surprises. We may see some folks and say, you mean you're here? Or somebody may look at us and say, whoa, you mean you're here? So there may be some surprises. But without repentance, you will not enter the kingdom. And we're going to get to repentance in chapter 15 because that's the heart of the 15th chapter uh, of Luke. Now, let's, um, oh, man. I love verses 25 to 35. Let's, let's do a little bit. Okay. You, are you with me? Can you hang in there a little bit longer? Verse 25. 
large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I think we better stop there for a moment. Large crowds are following Jesus and he is saying to them in this this section of of the chapter, there is a price to be paid for following me. There is a cost to discipleship. And he starts out by shocking us in verse 26 as he speaks words that say, hate your family and yourself and follow me. What, what, what's, what's up with that? Well, understand in these parables and word pictures that Jesus is giving in the gospel. He is not literally saying, hate your mama and your daddy, hate your sister and your brother, hate your grandparents, hate your children. But what he is driving home is there can be only one number one in your life. And that must be Christ so that he is clearly number one, so that by comparison, there is no comparison. There is no competition for who is most important in your life, and that is Jesus and your fellowship of him. So if you're with your spouse today, look at him or her and say, I love you, but I love Jesus more. That's because that's what Jesus is saying. There's no one on this earth more important, humanly speaking, than your bride or your husband or your children. Nobody's more important, humanly speaking, than they are. But Jesus is saying, I must be in the first place of lordship and worship So that by comparison, there is no comparison between my place in your heart and that of some other person in your heart. Now, what is Jesus driving home here? As we will see as we continue, we'll pick up with verse 27 next week. He's got a lot of people walking around out there, going from place to place, listening to him, hoping for a miracle, hoping for a multiplication of the loaves and the fish hoping to see a resurrection, hoping to see a healing. And they're they're hanging around and they're kind of following along. And some of them are saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus, which was no more true than a man in the moon. And Jesus wants them to know there's, there's a cost of being a disciple. There is a cost involved in following me. And he wants to make that clear. Don't, if you're not willing to pay that price, then go on back home and go back your house, wherever it is you live, go back and do what you've been doing. The price, there is a price to follow me and you need to know it and you need to be able to say, I will pay that price, that cost of discipleship. I will pay it to follow Jesus. So that's the point he's going to drive home in what's left of this 14th chapter. So that's where we'll pick up uh, next week, which I can't believe it, but next week, Next Wednesday is the last day of September. Where where does the time go? So we'll look at that, and then we'll get to chapter 15. And chapter 15 is all about the beauty of repentance. 
the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son, all in chapter 15. So hopefully we can get finished with 14 and do 15 next week. And there's some special stuff in there. All right. God bless you. Let me pray and then hang around for a while if you'd like. Uh, unmute yourself and talk if you want to. And we'll look forward to seeing you um, next Wednesday. Father, thank you for your precious word. Father, I pray that every person watching on the screen today really knows you personally, intimately, that you are their Savior and their Lord. And if there are any who are not certain, that they'll make it certain today. And that all of us will understand there is a cost involved to following you. And we're willing to pay that cost, that price, whatever it may be. So we love you. We adore you. We thank you for saving our souls. We thank you for blessing us in, in the ways that you have blessed us. We are undeserving, but we are grateful. And so I pray you'll bless us today that we may serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. God bless you. See you on the next Wednesday.